0: From Genesis 28, Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. Uh, sometimes geography is important. So, Jacob, left, Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones from that place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up upon the earth, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob, Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, for this is a gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar, poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the city, name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house." And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, we do once again give you thanks, and we would pray that you would bless the meditation of our thoughts and our minds, that you would fulfill every desire and purpose that you have for us, strengthening us by your word, we pray in your son's name. Amen. Please be seated. And if you would, grab your Bibles, turn to Genesis 28, Genesis 28. As I mentioned, geography is sometimes really important. Uh, I don't know why this is the case. I think um, I have some vague memories of feeling lost when I was a kid and being very panicked about being lost and being nervous about that. Uh, My father's also a land surveyor, so between the two of them, maybe this is where I get my, my desire always to know where I am. If Kelly and I travel somewhere, I always am checking out a map. I'm always looking at things. I like to know where the cities are in relationship to each other, the road system that connects. I... I like to know where I am. Uh, and That's maybe particular to me, but that's okay. Lots of times, it really doesn't matter specifically where you are. And that's certainly the case when you come to something like in verse 10 here of our text before us. Verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. My guess is that 99% of the time, when you read a verse like that, Your mind does what everybody's mind does. Okay, Jacob was up and he was moving around. He went from one spot to another spot, and that's about all there is to it. And we don't focus, we don't spend a whole lot of time saying, well, where exactly is this place, or where is that place, and those kind of things. We're not overwhelmed by the actual geography of the matter. That doesn't strike us, that doesn't hit us as important. It's really important for us today. So, quick geography lesson, all right? Here is uh, the Canaan land. This is the land of the promise right in here. And so this is where God has led Abraham and has promised Isaac and all of his descendants. This will be your land right here. This is Canaan land, the promised land. And right towards the bottom, not all the way at the bottom, but close to the southern part of this spot. So down here somewhere is Beersheba. Beersheba is that land where specifically Abraham settled. Now Abraham traveled throughout the land, but when he wanted to settle down, he settled in Beersheba, which again is kind of at the southern portion of this land right here. And so this is where he settled. And remember when Isaac, his son, needed a wife, Abraham said, now don't let, he said to his servant, don't let... Isaac leave this land. This is the land where Isaac is supposed to stay. Go find him a wife somewhere, but don't let him leave. He needs to stay here in this land. And indeed, Isaac ended up settling right there in Beersheba, right next to his father, right with his father. So Beersheba, that southern part of the geography, is kind of the center spot for this. Now Jacob, we're told in verse 10, Jacob leaves Beersheba. Now we've kind of talked about Jacob before. Um, A couple weeks ago, I talked about Jacob, and I referred to him as a bum. And last week, Doug referred to Jacob as a scoundrel. Uh, Doug's much more classy than I am. So we're going to go with scoundrel. Jacob is a scoundrel, and you can see part of his scoundrelness all the way through here. If you'll remember, he stole Esau's birthright. Then he went ahead and stole Esau's blessing, his brother's blessing. And so there's great animosity here. And so what happens is, again... Jacob is living down here at the southern part of Canaan land and he knows that there's frustration between he and his brother and so we're told that Jacob leaves Beersheba and goes to Haran. Now here's where geography counts and if you're a real close reader of the Bible you will have remembered that Haran is where Abraham was originally from. Uh, originally he was from Ur but then he spent some time in, in Haran. Haran is about 400 500 miles northeast. So this is Canaan land. We're talking, you know, up here near the lights. That's how far away Haran is. And this whole passage, everything that we're about to see, is built around this simple geographic reality that God called Abraham to live in this place, promised that this place... Canaan land would be the spot of his blessing, a spot of his descendants, the spot where God would dwell with his people. And here we see Jacob going from here, the southernmost part of this blessedness, way out of range, going back to Haran. Verse 11, then we are told of the dream, the beginning part of the dream here. So he, that is Jacob, Jacob came to a certain place and stayed the night. Now, I I, I caught me right off the bat just because I made such a big deal out of verse 10, where the geography is so important. Then you get to verse 11, and it's completely vague. Jacob came to a certain place. You know, he just comes someplace. And normally, I would have just passed on that, as I expect many of you would have when you're reading the text, and you would have thought, okay, it's just... It's just some unnamed spot someplace where Jacob stops for the night. And he, and he, but when you go to verse 19, I think it's verse 19. When you, go to, uh, when you go to verse 19, you find out that indeed there was a city there where he stayed. It was the city of Luz, which really was the second most powerful, the second largest city in all of Canaan land at that time. So why is it that, why doesn't the biblical author tell us, hey, look, he was traveling from from Beersheba, and he's going up to Haran, and he stops at Luz on the way and has this great dream. And I think it's because of exactly the point that God is trying to communicate to Jacob through this experience. Now, we're going to talk briefly about the dream, but a lot of people fixate on the dream here. But the dream is part of this whole entire story that starts with the recognition that Jacob is fleeing the presence of God. He is running away from all of those promises that God has given to Abraham and to Isaac. He is betraying everything that he was told was his for all of these good things. And he's on his way there, and so he stops at a certain place. And I think it's vague because it's intended to communicate, the message that God is going to communicate is exactly that. This is not rooted to a place. And behold, I am not rooted to a place. We're going to talk today about two theological terms. Transcendence and imminence. And I believe that that's the thrust of this text. That's the lesson that Jacob is supposed to learn. And I trust, then, that it's the lesson that we are supposed to learn. It's why God has given us his scripture. It's why God has given us this passage of material, I think, so that we can walk away with a better understanding of God's transcendence and his imminence. All right, transcendence. Transcendence, many of you might recognize that terminology either from theology or from religious studies or something like that. Transcendence is the idea that God is wholly other. He is completely far beyond. He is above and beyond everything that we can think and imagine. He is separate. He is distinct. He is not anchored to creation. He is not part of creation. He is above and beyond all creation. He is separated from all things. And because of that that carries certain understandings for us who appreciate God that way. God is sovereign over all things. He is beyond all things. He is not trapped in this world. He is not stuck by the circumstances that stick to us and separate to us. And yet at the same time, God is imminent. Now God's imminence, again, a theological term, this is almost the exact opposite. As a matter of fact, you can usually set up the idea of transcendence and imminence as opposites. Imminence is the... It is the connectedness, it's the interwovenness, it is a recognition that God is not just far beyond, God's not up in heaven, that God is woven into all of his creation, that he is intimately connected with everything that is going on here, that he is tied so completely with the presence of his people that it's impossible to imagine there's a separation that is there. God is both transcendent and he is imminent. I want you to imagine a red car. A completely red car. Go ahead, quickly, everybody, put in your mind, that's a red car. Okay, you got a red car? All right, now what I want you to do is put in your mind, imagine a yellow car. Okay, you got it? That's a yellow car. So you got a red car, you got a yellow car. Now I'm going to tell you, they're the same car. They're the same car. Now your mind immediately does something. It, I've got a couple of people shaking their heads, which I appreciate. That's part of it, okay? You can't have a completely red car and a completely yellow car. So our minds tend to do certain things. We kind of say, okay, it's, it's mostly red with a little bit of yellow. Or it's, or it's part red and it's part yellow. Or sometimes it's red and sometimes it's yellow. Or maybe it's just orange. It's a mix of the two of them together and that's kind of thing. And when we come to face-to-face with the fact that our God is transcendent, above all things, separated from everything, the judge, the sovereign over all things, and then at the same time that he is intimately woven, connected, tied to each and every one of us, what usually happens is that we do that same red car, yellow car thing in our minds. We, we sit there and say, well... May, maybe he's not that transcendent, he's just sort of transcendent. Or he's transcendent some of the time, and he's imminent sometimes. Or maybe he's just kind of a smurge of both of them, and the scripture will never let us do that. The scripture says, listen, this is your God. Your God is holy, completely, totally other. And at the same time, he is completely, totally imminent with you. The temptation we have to take his transcendence and to make it smaller by saying, well, God's up there in heaven. He's just a really, really, really big me. He's a big human being, so he's kind of like us. He's really like us. He's just bigger and powerfuller. Powerful? More powerful. He, he's No, that's... That's not right. Or his imminence. Okay, we know God is omnipresent. He's everywhere, so he's here, he's next to us, and stuff like that. But that's only in kind of this mystical, weirdo way. You know, no. When we talk about God's imminence, we talk about everything that God is. Everything that God is. Woven intimately with every step you take. That's the imminence and the transcendence of our God. Take a look with me, if you would, at verse 12. Verse 12, And Jacob dreams. And why did he dream? Because he was using a stone as a pillow. So he has a headache. Of course he dreams. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and its top reached into heavens. Behold, the angel of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. Now I want you to, to catch this for a second, because it's slightly... You can see it in the phrasing, even in English, that something weird is going on. There's a ladder, not that rises from the earth and stretches into heaven. That's specifically not what the language is. The language is that the ladder comes down from heaven, and it is touching upon the earth. Think about the difference between that. Some of you know the old kid's song, you know, We Are Climbing Jacob's Ladder. And now it's stuck in my head. I'm sorry if it's stuck in yours. Because it's all wrong. We are not climbing Jacob's ladder. Jacob's ladder is exactly the opposite. It is set up not from us to God, but it is set up from God down to us. And the picture is that the angels are ascending and descending. It's this... The imagery of the messengers of God, it's God's presence itself. Very often the Old Testament uh, uses the angels as a picture of God's presence itself. God is ascend- God is the one who is imminently connected with everything that is happening, and yet he is the one who is standing above in the clouds. He is the one who is standing above up in heaven. And so you've got this transcendence, and yet you've got this imminence of the whole thing that the, that. Jacob here is dreaming. He sees and he is told, hey, this is who God is. God is holy. other. He is up in heaven. He is far and away. But he is the one who is coming down and walking and present with me. And you can see that then as the text goes on in verse 13. God then says, uh, the Lord then says, I am the Lord, the God of your f- Abraham, your father, God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to your offspring. And your offspring will be so numerous that they'll spread across the earth. And then through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And this is something that we have heard, how many times? Eight, ten different versions of it already in Genesis. This overwhelming promise that keeps coming up. Your offspring will be so numerous. They will dwell in this land and that all of the world will be blessed through you. It's kind of like a chorus. By this point in the game, we all kind of know the chorus. That was a new song kind of that Brendan did, or at least it was new to me. Was that new the last one to most of you? But I heard some of you singing by the time he got to the chorus the last time through. Because we'd heard it enough time, you can start to pick it up a little bit. Um, The other day, Kelly and I went on a car ride, uh, and we just caught an oldie station by accident. And it's amazing how you know all of the choruses. You know, they all come back to you, and you're singing along from the 1970s and stuff like that. Well, that's because you hear it over and over again. This is this chorus. This is this repetition of God's covenant promises. Hey, remember... In this land here, you will dwell and experience my blessings. In this land here, you will have an outpouring of people. And in this land here, through you, all the nations will be blessed. Jacob, where are you going? Where are you going? God adds to this promise. Look in verse 15, because this is really, this is the first time he kind of adds this tag to that constant uh, repetitious, that constant chorus that we hear over and over again. God's going to bless the whole world through Abraham and Isaac. But in addition to that, in verse 15, he says, Behold, I am with you. I will keep you. And I will bring you back to this land. Now, this is new. Listen to what God is saying here. Jacob, you are leaving. You are leaving my promises. You are leaving my covenant connection. You are leaving what you know you are supposed to be doing. Where are you going? And, and, and remember, I am the sovereign one over everything. I am the transcendent one. But I am also intimate with you, walking closely with you, so I will be with you. Now, my mother used to always threaten me, you know, when I die, I'm coming back to haunt you the rest of your life, okay? And and so there's a thought in there that, what is God saying to Jacob? Hey, it doesn't matter where you go, I'm going to be there to watch That's not it at all. It's exactly the opposite. He's saying, Jacob, here is where my will is for your life. Here is where you are to be. Here is where you are to live and experience the fullness of your life. But if you go to Haran, if you leave for Haran, know this. I am with you. I am with you not to haunt you. I am with you to bless you. And then he says, and I will keep you. And the idea of being kept here, the, the, the word there is guard, safe, protect. But more than that, it's, it, it's after, it, it, it's, it describes a wall that has surrounded something, but not a virgin wall, a wall after it's already been hit by the enemy. And so the picture is here, I will protect you in all of the hard things that are coming in your life all the difficulties that are ahead for you, I will be there. And I will protect you. And then finally, that great promise. I will bring you back. And I will bring you back. That transcendent God that says, I am sovereign over everything, says, and I am intimately, so intimately connected to you, that no matter where you go, no matter what you do, no matter how far you stray from exactly the spot that I want you to be in, I will be with you. I will keep you. Not that you won't experience bad things, but I will keep you. And I will bring you back. And Jacob, in a flood of realization, in an overwhelming sense of, oh my gosh, if this is my Lord, then I never want to leave him. Then wherever he is, I'm going to stick right here, and this is where it is. Jacob, in a recognition that turns his whole world around, says, I'm no longer going to be a, what's our word? Scoundrel. I'm no longer going to be a scoundrel. I'm going to be a good guy from now on. Completely muffs it all over again. Look at what he says here when he, when he awakes. Verse 17, And Jacob was afraid. Now, fear before our God is not a bad thing. Fear before our God is something that the scriptures uh, reiterate over and over again. It's a fear, a reverent fear. It's an awesome fear. It's a a recognition of, yes, there might be terror, and that might be appropriate, but it's a terror, it's a a fear that is nevertheless given over to God. It's, It's one, man, I can't wait to worship you because of who you are. But Jacob here is just scared. He's terrified about what is coming. And so Jacob wakes and he says how awesome is this place now listen to what he says how awesome is this place this is none other than the house of god the gate of heaven what was god trying to make the point i'm everywhere i'm never going to leave you no matter where you go and jacob says oh you're here you're stuck here in this place. I'm going to make a house for you here. I'm going to make this a, 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 a temple for you in this place. I'm going to make the, 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 the stone that I slept on is going to be the footstone of your, of your worship and stuff like that. He's completely missing the point. Jacob is caught up in the fact that he's had an experience with God in this place. And so the place is important. And then what does Jacob do, by the way? You know what's ha- coming here. He says, hey, God is in this place, so I'm leaving and going on to Haran. Which he does. He goes on to Haran. He completely misses the thrust of this text, of the thrust of God's point, that he is transcendent over all. And you can tell how badly he misses it by the vow, part of his worship, an imperfect worship that he gives in verse 20. And Jacob made a vow saying this. Now, when I read this, read it like a scoundrel. Okay? Read it and see if you can't identify the scoundrel in your own heart. Is there anybody in this room that hasn't worshipped imperfectly in a in a terrible, scoundrel-like way, exactly like this. Listen to what Jacob says. Well then, that's the translation early in verse 20. Well then, if God will be with me, and if he will keep me in this way that I will go, and if he will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that when I come again to my father's house in peace, then okay, God will be my God. Lord, if you just get me through this test, uh, that's, that's one that I use numerous times. That's why I'm a pastor. No, <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, you know, God, if, if, just, if, you, if you could just heal my loved one, if, if just this worked out better in my work relationship, if I just had some peace and calm in my family, if you would just do this change in my loved one's life, then man, I'll do anything I can for you. That kind of transactional Christianity, transactional, you do for me, then I will do for you, is the antithesis of what the Bible puts forward. Every time you catch yourself doing that, you are playing the scoundrel you're playing the bum. because god has spent his time revealing that he's a transcendent one and he's the imminent one and no matter where you go he's going to be transcendent over all of those things and no matter what you do he's going to be intimately connected imminent with every step that you take why because he has promised that he will be with you He has promised that he will keep you. He has promised that he will bring you back. And that's the only thing that matters. Not what you do, but what he has decided to do. And he has decided for you today to call you to this place, to grant you his gift of grace of being in this place to worship him right now. I beg you, if you have not turned your life over to that Lord, if you are not walking intimately with that God, if you are on the way to Haran and you know it's not the spot for you, turn around now. Give your life to the Lord. Take that scoundrel that is so intimately woven into your heart. Confess it before God. And you will be amazed at the blessings. You will be amazed at the peace. You will be amazed how much you sense and feel again anew today. That he is with you. He will keep you. And he will bring you back to himself. Oh Lord our God. How much we need that very blessing. For you to overwhelm us with your presence. To open our eyes again so that we would see that transcendent beauty of the Lord. And yet where we would also experience the fullness, the completeness, the intimacy of your intimacy. Your imminence. That we would know that Lord. And that that would transform every action that we take. That no longer would we be moving off on our own. No longer would we be on the way to Heron, giving ourselves over to our scoundrelness. But rather that we would open ourselves completely and totally to the love and grace that is ours in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.